It's not always easy to find the positive. You might even need to search for happiness. Sometimes, just a little inspiration can make the difference. Here, it comes from unexpected places. Welcome to the Tangential Inspiration Podcast. Hi, I'm Teresa. And I'm Amy. We are two ordinary moms looking for inspiration wherever we can find it. Anything fun happened last week? Some normalcy. So I'm super excited. My son's girlfriend got to have her dance company get together, and oh, she's a senior, so nice. it was their last performance. Oh, that's awesome. Inside. It was beautiful. Um, my nephew had his fifth birthday party, oh, so we got to go cute. hang out there, and he yeah, had his friend over and a little pinata, so that was adorable. Fun. And I got to hold the baby. Aww. So bonus there. The unfortunate part, while we were at the birthday party, the new dog escaped. Aww. But the good news is, there are, I found some good people out there that when I ran into, I was, they were playing baseball. And I'm like, have you seen a, a palm ski? And he put it up on next door. He put oh, it up wow. on Facebook. He got my number. His wife went looking for the dog. Oh, sweet. They drove, he drove around with his son. So oh, good people really out good there. people out there. And awesome. some good people got him. Took him to the vet and they read his chip and so oh, that's we how have that him works, back. I'm, <laughs> I'm a newbie at that. We, we chipped our dogs, so that's oh, good to know. Oh my goodness, how. yeah, not that's scary not good, though, but very scary. But still, all worked out for the best and good people out there. Yeah, so it was a good reminder. Yay. I'm still in graduation mode. Oh, I know. <laughs> You're talking, talking about thank, thank you, you cards. cards. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But maybe it's because this year's just been surreal with everything. Right. Can't even believe that my youngest is a high school graduate. But I came across another graduate Aww. who was all sorts of inspiring. Giuseppe Paterno was born into a poor family in Italy between poverty, because he was born in, during the Great Depression. Okay. And World War II, he never found the time to finish school. So it wasn't that he didn't like school or anything like that. It's just circumstances simply prevented it. After the war, he married his sweetheart, and they had two kids, and he was happy and content working at the railway and supporting his family. He decided to get his diploma when he's 31. Oh, wow. Which I think is that's pretty cute and a good reminder that you're never too old to set new goals. Then in 2017, he decided to continue his education, and he started college classes, majoring in history and philosophy, which I think is all sorts of awesome because he lived through, I mean, he had to have been the expert. He could get up and talk. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) He typed out his work on a manual typewriter that his mother had given to him when he was retiring from the railway in 1984. I wonder if he even had correction. It probably had correction (laughs) tape, but... Probably, yeah. Well, I, but I, I don't know if you can buy new of that. Yeah, you probably can't. You know, it could have been really gooey. <laughs> yeah. have to be very careful. <laughs> but when COVID hit in March, his classes were held through the video conference, and that was a whole new challenge, oh, but still yeah, didn't I stop bet. him. He got it done, and he graduated at 96 years oh. old. So I love that he didn't allow social standards to get in his way. Yeah. He decided to learn along his own timetable. And now that he's done with school, he's planning to catch up on the text that he missed during the time he was distracted with his studies. Oh, so I just I think it's adorable. But he's also planning to write. And he said, knowledge is like a suitcase that I carry with me. It's a treasure. Aww. Which I think is... That's a great analogy. Yeah, great yeah. way to look at it. Yeah. 
Another person in their 90s not living by boring old normal social standards is Sister Madonna Booter. Mary Dorothy Booter was her given name, but she's a senior Olympic triathlete. So oh, I thought she fit in well wow, with the Olympics. Fun. She also holds the world record as the oldest woman to ever finish an Ironman. She wow. did that August 26th in, at 2012 at age 82. Holy moly. 82. I guess there's <laughs> so I admire that she's a nun in yeah. in its, you know in its own terms and she does in 1970 she broke away from the congregation to establish a non-traditional community of religious sisters. Her and 38 other sisters wanted to follow the teachings of the Second Vatican and wanted freedom to choose their own ministry okay, and and yeah. their own lifestyle. So I first off admire that but then this also adds to it. She started training at 48. Wow. After Father John suggested it was a way to tweak the, quote, mind, body, and spirit, she completed her first triathlon at 52. Wow. That's so on awesome. her first Ironman at 55. So she's currently done 325 triathlons and 45 Ironman triathlons. Wow. So remember that's, uh, yeah. yeah, we've chatted about it, but like a 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike, and then a marathon. So that's 140 miles right there. That's incredible. At 75 in 2005, she became the oldest woman to complete the race. She did it again in 2006. In 2008, she raced Ironman British Columbia, but was unable to finish in the 17-hour cutoff time. 371 days later, she returned to finish in 16 hours, 54 minutes, and 30 seconds. Now remember... You're exercising this wow. whole, you're yeah. move, this is yeah. 16 That's... hours of exercise, almost 17. She beat her own age record. Iron Man has, has had to add new age brackets oh, to awesome. follow her, yeah. you know, as she has birthdays. So as the Iron Nun gets older, they have to increase their age brackets, which I think is awesome. That's so great. Um, she's still the oldest Iron Man world record holder at 82. She trains religiously and earns money for different charities. So both of these people inspire me to set and shoot for my own goals. They aren't allowing age to be an excuse. They're not worrying about what other people might say or wasting time with other nonsense. It's just a really good reminder that it's never too late. Uh, You know, set some goals and shoot for them because why not? I'm super stoked for the Summer Olympics. Me too. Later this month. I'm even more excited that surfing is finally being included in the games. I just don't understand how they're going to do that. I, well, I know. I And I know I don't surf. Mm-hmm. I'm more like an armchair enthusiast, <laughs> you know. But the little history about the sport. Duke Kahanamoku, a three-time Olympic freestyle swimming champion, oh. advocated that surfing be included back in the Olympics games in 1920. Duke is known as the father of surfing and is credited for bringing it to the mainland USA and its popularity. Hmm. Another huge proponent of surfing being included in the Olympics is Fernando Aguirre, who has been an advocate of the sport over the years. He was born in 1957 in Argentina. His parents were both lawyers. Fernando started surfing when he was 11. And his mom, Norma, had a major role in surfing in Argentina because of her son's passion for the sport. In 1978, Jorge Rafael Vidal Redondo's dictatorship banned surfing. So I no, do not. Why? I know. Why would you ever? Well, I think it was it just a dictator. Would bring in money? Yeah. I, mean, I don't mm. get it. 
But Norma teamed up with her sons to fight back the ban and succeeded in 1979, ending, ending the ban. And then Fernando founded the National Surfing Association of Argentina, and the surf community grew from like 150 to 2,000, which is pretty amazing because yeah. this is like in the early 80s. Then after earning a law degree in 1985, he moved to San Diego and founded Reef Brazil, the surf sandal mm-hmm. footwear company. The so flip-flops. did he do the law degree because his parents were lawyers? I think so. That for yeah, the- he wouldn't need okay. that for that. Okay. But he, he got the law degree no. and then ended up deciding why not do no. that. And then in 90, 1994, he became a chairman of the International Surfing Association and then in 96, he refocused the vision of World Surfing Championship with its main goal being in, including surfing in the Olympics. Mm. So now, 25 years later, <laughs> surfing is finally included uh. in the Olympic Games. And one of the women representing the U.S. this summer is Carissa Moore. She is a four-time World Surf League champion. She has 11 national awards and 22 championships. I mean, whoa. Very accomplished, definitely. Yeah. She's 28 from Honolulu, Hawaii. And, yeah, she knows and is <laughs> friends with Bethany Hamilton, who we talked about in episode eight. They have competed against each other. Hmm. Yeah. Are they the same age? They're very close. Couple okay. years, I think okay. maybe a couple years apart. Krista, like Bethany, has been surfing since she was young. In Krista's case... A baby. Her dad, Chris, had envisioned teaching his baby girl how to surf after taking his wife to see Bruce Brown's movie Endless Summer 2 in 1995. There's a scene of this like five year old TJ Barron ripping it up in the waves on North Shore of Oahu. Okay. I love that movie. I don't know if you've seen it. I've never seen that movie, but um, we were um, on Oahu when they were doing some sort of surfing competition. Oh, cool. And yeah, now, hindsight, I probably should have gone to watch it, and yeah. then I would have had more to discuss. It's a great film. Ryan and I saw it back in the day in the movie theater with a bunch of his surfing friends. It highlights the evolution of the sport while surfers Pat O'Connell and Robert Wingnut, is his nickname, hmm. Weaver, they retrace the steps of the surfers in the original 1966 movie, Endless Summer. Hmm. It's really heard, cool. It's got that, that surf music going. Yeah. It's worth watching. But anyways, the movie inspired Carissa's dad to see if he could get Carissa uh, into a, turn her into like a little water bug, as Mm -hmm. he puts it. So he started off when Carissa was like a few months old. He put her carefully on a surfboard in their living room. (laughs) And then eventually had her in the backyard in the pool. He really wanted both his daughters to love the ocean and surf. Mm -hmm. He wanted to make it fun. So he he kept it fun. He, you know, spent hours teaching Carissa how to swim. They had a lot of adventures. Sometimes she'd just lounge on her dad's back. Surf, you know, some, making sure to stop when it's not fun, and then playing on the beach, making sandcastles. Good dad. Good dad right there. So So he would have been good for Father's Day month. Yeah, sweet. as well. Yeah, sweet man. And, you know, the ocean was a fun escape. She learned to surf when she was five, and by age six, her dad entered her in a six and under competition. Oh, my gosh. And there was just 12 competitors, a mix of boys and girls. And I love this. He goes, he said, okay, you ready? Uh, Paddle out as far as those kids over there. And then when a good wave comes, stand up. Head this wave and do some turns. I mean, I just love this instruction. It's just so simple. It reminds me of when my brother wrestled, and I'd be like, just flip and pin, Dave. Just flip and pin. (laughs) Right. It's just like, do, do, do. 
She surfed well, but she got beat by this little blonde boy named John John Florence. Now, hmm. funny thing is, he's a world surfing champion holder and currently probably the best male surfer on the planet. And he's also in the Summer Olympics. I just oh, love that okay. they're both in the Summer Olympics at the yeah. same time. And Good for them. They are so little. But anyways, Chris's dad would, you know, take her surfing before and after school. He became her coach and biggest supporter. Side note, Krista attended Puna Ho School. Do you know who else went there? It's a K-12 preparatory. No idea. Barack Obama. I should know. Well, I should know that. But I did read his yeah. book when he was talking about growing up there. So, but, yeah, kind of interesting. Oh. Yeah. Anyways, it was tough when she turned nine. Her parents got divorced. So that meant she was with her dad only three and a half days a week. And that cut down on surf time. Chris had a hard time in the early years managing Krissa and his own expectations mm-hmm. during surf competitions. He learned how to focus on the positive and not be too critical. Which is very rare. It's really you rare. You don't he, see that yeah, often. Yeah. I mean, I read a book and he was talking about how he just had to hold it back because he just learned that it wasn't helpful. Yeah. And then the other thing I thought was really cool, part of her competition readiness, he would go and wherever they fly to to do a surf competition, he would get local advice on the style of waves, the surf conditions, Mm -hmm. just to kind of help maximize Carissa's potential. Smart. Yeah, really smart. smart. Yeah. She competed in surf competitions from like six on, but didn't turn pro till after high school. And she still was a huge force in surfing. I love that she's the first woman invited to participate in the men's triple crown surfing competition. Is that because the women? It was all it was all men. Okay, I was gonna. Yeah, say. yeah, <laughs> she was the first woman, and she won the, the Reef Hawaiian Pro, which is okay. the first leg of this competition mm-hmm. at sixteen, and the youngest. There's no doubt she's an awesome surfer. She's had a lot of firsts. She's also the youngest to win women's world tour at eighteen. Hmm. Um, and then I recently listened to a podcast, The Lineup with Dave Rodan, where she talked about taking 2020 off. This podcast was taped in December 2019, just after she won her fourth Women's World Championship. So before COVID. So good timing for kind her. Kind of interesting. Yeah. yeah. During this interview, she said she's the kind of person that gives 100% to the sport. And if she can, it really weighs on her. And she really wants a long career. For herself and for her fans. And uh, it's a, it's intense to compete at this level. Oh, sure. And a lot of people look at, oh, you're a surfer. It's pretty glamorous. But it's an everyday commitment. You they, know? Don't, they don't take into consideration the hours. That you put into it. Yeah, and the diet and just Everything. all of it. The, it's no. mentally and no. physically oh, tasking. Right. I mean, she says that she wakes up every day thinking, what am I going to do today to get me closer no. to that world championship? Well, you have to obsess about it. Yeah. That's how you win. That's exactly. So. She has spent the last decade on tour, and she recently married her high school sweetheart. Oh, it's cute. And now, you know, she wants an opportunity to be a wife and travel and surf some different spots. Mm-hmm. Which is how fun for them. I you know. Just go find places to surf. Yeah. I, this decision was like liberating and helped her focus, knowing she was going to have a break. It gave her some extra motivation. She wanted to turn things around going into the 2019 tour, kind of level-headed to be resilient and to process the outcome of the competition, no matter how it turns out. She wanted to show her love of the sport, making a difference every step of the way. I just love her spirit. 
I guess all her other competitions have been this emotional roller coaster, and that's what her dad says. I mean, hmm. and for this last one, she wanted to change her mindset and to set personal goals, like smiling at someone on the beach, writing down what she's grateful for. I love that. You know, simple she, things. Simple things. No. She but also, basic. Basic, yeah. She also worked with a sports psychologist. You know, she'd been focusing on results mm-hmm. in all her events, and the psychologist helped her focus on some other key things like letting go, inner peace, and all these decisions helped her actually do better in the water and predict things a little bit better. Hmm. And she found being it, in the moment, being in the moment, which we all need to work on. Oh, we do, I mean, especially. I mean. <laughs> And she found it super helpful to have someone to flesh out things in a process. Chris also focused on the present and made short and long-term goals. She wants to be better at surfing and keep improving, be more progressive in her surfing and figure out how to flow better and reading the ocean better, which mm. I, f- I find so interesting at this level that you mm-hmm. still feel I'm like you, to... you want to do more, you yeah. want to do better. I so admire her self-introspection. She's so appreciative of her life her surfing, and she really feels blessed. Krista also said, although she was taking a break from the world tour in 2020, she was happy to hear that the first female Japanese surfer, Amuro Tezuki, is joining the tour. So awesome. And Amuro is also qualified for the Olympics, so that's so cool. So she's the first female, female Japanese okay. to be on the tour. So I think that's so cool. Chris is pretty amazing, and what I admire most about her is how she gives back t- to the sport. Her advocating for women and young girls to have the same opportunities as men. I love how she puts it. Girls can do exactly what guys do. We can do airs. Mm-hmm. We can <laughs> do huge power carves, but with a little grace, yeah, too. I, yeah. I just love that. She has led the charge to, to change the prize money for women. Currently, women receive one-third what men receive. So that's... That's just crazy because it's know. the same amount of work. Uh, yeah. Same amount of work. So it's, it's really hard to But I mean, that's in every sport. You find yeah. In every sport. In 2018, she founded War Aloha with her dad and husband. Their mission is to encourage young girls through the sport of surfing to be strong and confident compassionate individuals. I wish they had a foundation for old girls. I would too. I would <laughs> join. I, I would love to. I love the, what they're focusing yeah, on, you know. Yeah. I want to, maybe Ryan could teach me to surf because I would love to do it. I'm a little bit scared of sharks. I'm yeah. scared of cold water more so than sharks. <laughs> well, especially up in Oregon. That would yeah. be kind of hard. Yeah. I love that their camp promotes self-confidence, positive body image, healthy living, and mindfulness of people and the world around them. So awesome. Mm-hmm. It's a small grassroots nonprofit. So they've so far they've ran like two day, two night camp on the North Shore mm. of Oahu for twenty five mm-hmm. girls. Maybe we should send them a note and yeah. ask them to do for twenty five older Old girls. girls in Oregon. Come out our way. <laughs> and then they did a little day at the beach for twenty two girls. And then they've also hosted a global exchange with four girls from Tahiti, Fiji, New Zealand, and Australia. Mm. So that's mm. pretty cool. I love that she's, you know, passing her love of the sport onto the next generation of females. It's just so cool. Mm-hmm. But I have to say, there's been a lot of talk about, so what's the surf going to be like in Japan? Yeah. Well, and I've read some things that... Yeah. The surfing event is supposed to take place at Shida Ashita Beach, which is 40 miles outside of Tokyo in Chiba. And Japan has awesome surfing. This location can be a bit unpredictable and has been known to have some small kind of funky waves. Mm -hmm. 
The quality of surf really depends on that tropical cyclones and typhoons, which are typical during the warmer months, May through October. So this creates powerful east and southeast swells upon the shores, which is awesome for the summer Olympics. So hopefully there will be at least some days of decent surf during the eight-day competition. I read there was some debate about using a wave pool for the See, competition. That's what I would think they would do. So that yeah, it's... so the competitors have the same opportunity because yeah. yeah. it really comes down to your performance on the wave. Yeah. So which is um, absolutely unfair if people get better waves than other people. But I guess other surfing competitions, that's the case. That's how it is. So yeah, that's just, and I that's guess life. That's the strong desires for the event to be out in the ocean. Once again, like her reading the ocean. So just yeah. learn to read it. I read that Carissa is honored to be representing the U.S. and Hawaii in the Mm. Olympics, and she wants to enjoy the whole experience, enjoy the festivities, the Olympic Village, and most importantly, be present in the moment. I really enjoyed learning more about her. I love her relationship with her dad. Wow, that sounds so sweet. And his support and constant encouragement of her surf career over the years. I'm just blown away by her 100% commitment and desire to improve Mm -hmm. and learn. At a young age. Yeah. This isn't... I just, I admire her vulnerability to be so open to about all that introspection. Mm-hmm. And I love how she's giving back to the sport mm-hmm. through her foundation and leading the way for women. Yeah. I have some fun facts for her, uh, just that I... Getting ready Getting for, ready, yeah. To watch yeah. her, because now I want to go... Yeah. She's been named Adventure of the Year for National Geographic, Women of the Year by Glamour, top female surfer in Surfer Magazine, their poll numerous wow, times. that's a big one. She's included in the Surfers Hall of Fame. I love this. The state of Hawaii declared January 4th to be Carissa Moore Day. Oh, that's so awesome. And this I love because I have problems with my feet being cold, but Hurley, one of her sponsors, made special heated booties to help Ooh. keep her feet warm during surfing. I guess oh her gosh. feet go numb and she couldn't feel the board. I have heated boots when I ski because I have the same problem. This is probably why I don't like skiing, but with when that I technology was first dating my husband, we were at a movie theater in the summer and my toes went numb. So, and oh, you yes. can't see I have that can't walk. Yeah. yeah. So, and I was like I can't walk. My toes are numb and he's like you can walk and no, you can't walk. No. So, I I need some of those booties. Some of those yeah. booties too. And I love, she wrote, she was most proud of finishing high school, Mm. keeping up with the balance Mm -hmm. between surfing and school. I think that's super incredible. And she also has been a courier for Waves for Water, which we (laughs) talked about in episode 36. She is one of many professional surfers who are part of this campaign to bring clean water to 100,000 people in one day. They divided up into teams and headed to one of five countries, Brazil, Nicaragua, Liberia, Indonesia, and Haiti. They brought a thousand water filtration wow. systems to distribute. I think that is so incredible. And I, it just the water. I mean, until you started talking about it, I had no idea how important. I mean, obviously, yeah. water we all need it, but that so many places don't have the water they need. That's very so that's, yeah, very cool. I'm inspired by those who live authentically and have the courage to be vulnerable. My dream is to encourage others to live their passions, to be unapologetically themselves, and to take the time for others and the world around them. Carissa Moore. In the spirit of the upcoming Olympic Games, I read... So excited. I know, me too. (laughs) I read about this Olympian and Paralympian, Craig Blanchett. Craig was born with a birth defect called proximal femoral focal deficiency, PFFD. It's a rare birth defect that affects the pelvis 
Mm-hmm. Uh, particularly the hip bone mm-hmm. and femur bones. So in Craig's case, he was born with his feet in, at his knees. Mm-hmm. Growing up in Torrance, California, he went to public school, and he didn't want kids to stare at him because he was different because no. of his disability, but because of the extraordinary things he could do, which I just admire his spirit and attitude. Mm-hmm. He never saw himself as disabled. And six, I wonder if he got that from his parents or, like, who taught him that? I don't I mean, know. Where did, he, where did that... I, I love that. I think it's perfect. That's how he should he be. He always, but. yeah. So in sixth grade, he got involved in, in wrestling. And then in high school, at 106, he had 12 wins and six losses, which is pretty, so, yeah. So he loves sports, and that really did kind of define who he was. Mm-hmm. He liked to swim, weightlifting, wrestling. And then a neighbor, Kevin Hansen, taught him about wheelchair sports. He first saw Kevin whizzing by his house. <laughs> in a racing wheelchair. And and Craig had just gotten one from his grandfather. So he chased after Kevin. And shortly after that, they became friends. And Kevin became his coach. His first professional race was in 1986 in Seattle, Washington, called Wheels of Fire. Uh, he came in fifth place out of 250 racers from around the world. Wow. Yeah. He beat legendary George Murray, who's on the box of Wheaties at the time. So, oh. Yeah. Pretty cool. Wow. And then in 1988... Craig competed in the exhibition wheelchair race at the Olympics in Seoul, Korea. So they didn't have Paralympics yet. Mm-hmm. He won the bronze. And That's crazy to me that it's so new it's that in so 1988 new. they didn't have it. Yeah. And it's amazing because it's less than nine-tenths of a second separate the top yeah. three finishers. Yeah, that doesn't, yeah, I mean, that doesn't surprise me because that's – you see that. Yeah, he um, – so then the following year, Nike offered Craig a sponsorship. Oh. Yeah. So he had that relationship with them for about eight years. And he did a commercial where they show Craig just from the waist up cross training. Mm-hmm. They show him, you know, playing basketball, racquetball, weightlifting. And he says, I've been doing a lot of different activities so that I never get bored. And then he says, so I never quit. And then the commercial ends with him riding his wheelchair out in the sunset. It's pretty cool, Aww, YouTube. That gives me like you should YouTube it. I gotta watch that. Yeah, it's because really my cool. sister in law works at Nike, so obviously I love Swoosh, yeah. but that that totally gives me. Goosebumps. And it's pretty cool because there was some talk that that's the first time they kind of promoted somebody that wasn't in running shoes, you know. Yeah. So it's just kind of an interesting perspective. Exactly. Rather than the stuff we see all the time, right? That isn't. Typical. I mean, I feel like they need to be more inclusive of right. all types of people that are going to use their gear yeah. or wear their, their brand. Right. I, so I love that. I, I love know. That I totally would, agree. Yeah. Uh, Craig's determination and perseverance led him to challenge George Murray's record of 3 minutes, 59 seconds in one. Uh, it's a one-mile race. Mm. And guess where the race was? It was... Here in Eugene, Oregon, okay. it's the it was the Prefontaine Town. Classic. Okay, yeah, yeah. But there were horrible headwinds, and he yeah. said he just remembered hitting the his hand rings down the back stretch and trying to keep his form. But he finished with three minutes fifty one, so he did beat mm-hmm. the record. So that's pretty cool. Uh, he competed in large races in nineteen eighty seven and eighty nine ninety one in the wheelchair divisions of. Um, Gasparella and the Lilac Bloomsbury 12K in Spokane mm. and other races. And then he also participated in this research study prior to the 1992 Olympic trials where he pushed his wheelchair a mile a day. And so this motion is different than using like your wheelch- your racing wheelchair, that motion. 
and it, I guess it created a lot of tension in his neck and shoulder, so it would tighten up. So he tried to get some like massage therapy before the trials, but it, it impacted his performance. Mm. It was too bad. Yes. But and then in uh, 1996 at the U.S. Olympic trials, a fellow competitor was giving Craig a hard time about not working hard, just you know, kind of riding the draft. <sighs> Which set him off, and so he led he led the race early on. Unfortunately, you know, he hit the wall because he yeah. went off too fast yeah. and finished fifth. But you know, he learned Which was probably the plan. Yeah. for that guy, you know, to egg him on. Smack with right. They talk smack. Yeah, but he learned. You know, he learned from these experiences. He felt like his pride was getting in the way of his strategy, and persevered and moved forward. And then in two thousand, he got into a new sport, hand cycling, which. His first race didn't go well um, due to, you know, equipment problems. Mm. But, again, learning from the opportunity, you know, to spend time, make sure your equipment's, you know, ready to go for the race. He went on to win the U.S. hand cycling in 2000 and 2001. Wow. And so now currently he's married and has two sons. He has a, he's a life coach. He encourages others to transform their lives, body, mind, and finances, He's also a co-director at this National Wheelchair Sports Camp. It's a week-long camp that gives physically challenged children and adults an opportunity to check out a variety of sports, like horseback riding, water skiing. Very I know, cool. Uh, stuff basketball. I know. Stuff that you might not normally get the opportunity yeah. to check out. Yeah. And I love the mission of the camp is to encourage a can-do environment, which I think is so cool. Absolutely. Yeah. That's admirable. Yeah, definitely. Okay, my favorite part, Amy. Yay. So rapid fire with Olympic kind of based questions. Who's your favorite sports person? Well, I have to say uh, Carrie Walsh Jennings. I just love to watch. I love to watch beach ball, volleyball. You know, I'm so bummed that they're not going to be in the Olympics. So they didn't qualify. Her Mm. and I guess her new partner is Brooke Sweat. (laughs) That's perfect name for if you're in any type of sport. But um, what sport did you do growing up? You know, I guess I'd say ski because I was okay. not super sporty. I did a little swimming and a little gymnastics. Mm-hmm. But when I was about in third grade, my parents put me on a ski bus. And I did that like all the way through high school. Oh. So cold. I know. <laughs> so cold. What is your favorite summer Olympic event? Uh, it's a toss-up. I love gymnastics. I love no. swimming. And I love beach ball. <laughs> so. So a three-way tie. Yeah. What's your least favorite sport? doesn't have to be in the Olympics. I have to say football. Oh, and really? I, I liked it when I went to Washington State. Mm-hmm. Ryan and I used to go to games. Mm-hmm. But then I have not watched it. I mean, like college football. Yeah. Okay. But I I don't know. <laughs> so college football, and then yes, the, but... Professional? No, no. I don't know. It does go on forever. It just goes on forever, and I lose. It loses my attention. Interest. I know. I I hear you. What fashion trend did you love back in the day, but now it's embarrassing? Uh, How about the padded shouldered sweaters (laughs) with the stirrup leggings? (laughs) Those are kind of stirrup leggings. Do you remember those that you tuck into like booties, but they have the stirrup? (laughs) But those are kind of back. I know. So padded shoulders. I know. I think those are kind of back too. I know, so we could <laughs> just did you save any of your stuff? I did not. Okay, I wish I did. Whoever loves much, performs much, and can accomplish much, and what is done in love is done well. Vincent Van Gogh. 
Thanks for listening to Tangential Inspiration. We really want to hear from you. Email us your comments or story suggestions at tangentialinspiration at gmail.com or leave a comment on our website, tangentialinspiration.com. Our website has all our podcast episodes, show notes, stories, follow-ups, and links to websites and books we talk about. Like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app, and you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a great week.